Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 33, Plautus, Comedy Tonight. Last time, before the interviews and the Christmas break, I was discussing the development of theatre in Rome. That all seems a long time ago now, although it's only a few weeks, but I do hope you enjoyed the interviews with Dr Pagliar and Jimmy Waters. Both reminded me that the study of history and the art of the theatre are alive and kicking, even as live theatre is currently curtailed thanks to the pandemic. I keep everything crossed for the resumption of live performances, and in the meantime have been living off the televised offerings, particularly those from the National Theatre at Home and the Show Must Go On YouTube channel. Thank goodness for broadband internet and the willingness of the rights owners to let these shows out to us. Hopefully the donations will help struggling theatre organisations and professionals. And now for us it's back to Rome and the world of the Republic and the temporary theatres, but before we get started, a small disclaimer. In this episode, I've included a section on the courtesan character in the plays of Plautus, which includes a short piece on Roman attitudes towards sex and prostitution in the context of the position of women in Roman society. I've chosen the language I use for this very carefully and I hope completely respectfully, but it is an adult theme, so if you're listening in the range of young years, well, you've been warned and you might want to postpone until you're in adult company or have the earbuds firmly in place. Having set the scene with some Roman history and details on the Roman theatres over the last five episodes, it's now time to look at the playwrights of the Roman theatre and their work. As with the Greek playwrights, I'll take them chronologically. So we start with Titus Machius Plautus. Although generally speaking we do have more information pertaining to the Roman period than we had for the ancient Greeks, there are some still very large gaps and unfortunately speculations will still abound. As ever, I'll try to be clear about how sure we are and when we're on less certain ground. The life of Plautus is a case in point. The exact chronology of the events of his life are uncertain, but what follows is what seems to me to be the general consensus, although I have to point out that much of this biography is disputed. Plautus seems to have had quite a hard start in life. He was born in 254 BCE in Sarcinia in Umbria and served in the army before taking up acting. There are no details of his acting career, but it seems likely that he was part of an acting troupe touring Italy, presenting Attilan drama, the rude and crude comic skits mixed with song and dance that were popular in the towns and villages outside Rome. You'll remember from my conversation with Dr Pagliar three episodes back that this is a form of drama that we know very little about but plays a part in bringing theatre to the Greek colonies in the mainland Italy and from there onto the cities and Rome. Poor old Plautus didn't have much of an acting career. We don't have any details but scholars agree it's safe to say it wasn't a success and we next hear of him trying his hand at being a merchant but this too failed and he lost what little money he had. He was reduced to grinding flour in a hand mill and selling it on street corners. This was very lowly work, but something he continued to do even as he turned to playwriting. The details are sketchy, but I think we can take this as a struggling actor story that still sounds familiar today. Any work is okay as long as it keeps the wolf from the door and the dream of a life in the theatre alive. Apart from maybe his date of birth, none of this is close to a firm fact about his life, and much of his story has been derived from references in his works. For example, his birthplace is assumed from a reference in the play The Haunted House, and early biographers may have assumed he worked as a flower grinder because of several references in plays where a slave's greatest fear is punishment by being sent to the mill to work. 
If he did work turning grain into flour, then it was a prudent move to keep it up when his first two plays were produced. Addictus and Saturo were not successful. He was by now over 40, and I can only assume beginning to believe that his dreams were slipping away. But he persevered and had a great success with his third play, which was produced in about 204 BCE. What made this play different from his earlier works, and successful, is that he started to adapt from Greek plays rather than writing completely original material. He borrowed from Menander, Dephilus, Philemon and others, and then added larger-than-life and often low-brow characters, bringing the more high-flown elements of the original Greek down to a Roman level. No doubt his time in the army with the travelling players and more or less living on the streets helped him in to get an ear for the speech of the common Roman citizen and a sense of what amused them. He then followed up with as many as 130 plays over the next 30 years until his death in 184 BCE, although many of these attributions are uncertain. Once he found the way to make money, he kept right on at it, and making money was perhaps understandably his only aim given the struggles of his early life. He had a good sense of what was practical in the theatre and what Roman audiences liked, and he gave it to them again and again and again. He was said to be comic from his core, and his appearance with red hair, big feet and a protruding stomach only enhanced that view. That physical description is very much like the sort of comic character in a play, so much so that you have to wonder at its validity. 21 of his plays survive, more than any other dramatist from the Greek and Roman period. Whatever the actual number of plays he wrote, he was certainly prolific by anybody's standards, but that speed of production led to what seems like carelessness on his part. Sometimes he romanised the characters, sometimes he didn't. So the plays have a lot of inconsistencies and curious anomalies. But it seems this didn't bother him or his audience. This apparently carelessness and rapid style didn't go unmissed at the time. Horace is quite critical, saying that Plautus ran across the stage in loose slippers, referring to the soft low shoes that the comic actors wore. If we look at his work purely as adaptations of Greek originals, then we have to say he took great liberties with them. Not only did he merge plots and characters from different plays, but he extensively adapted the rhyme and the metres of the originals and inserted more crude and bawdy comedy. He followed the trend of the time and removed the chorus completely and staged the plays in the Roman way that I've described in the previous episodes. You will remember the single all-purpose setting of the street in front of houses, which in the time of temporary and mobile stages would have been represented in the most rudimentary way. It seems he always had just two primary purposes, to make the play practical to stage and to make the audience laugh. It's thought that Plautus took on the role of the actor-manager for productions of his plays and sustained his popularity for many years. As already mentioned, this was in the period of the temporary theatre and where the Senate held themselves mostly aloof from the mobile performances, at least in their public role. So it's a mark of his great achievement and acceptance that Plautus was granted Roman citizenship, which at the time, and given his Umbrian birth, was not his by right. It was at that point that he was allowed to use three names, and one has to admire his upfront sense of humour and self-deprecation when he added the Plautus and Machias to his familiar name Titus. Titus is a common Roman name, but it was also slang for the male organ. Machias was the clown stock figure in Attilan farce, so adopting that name could have been a nod to his theatrical beginnings, and the rather grand-sounding Plautus actually means flat-footed. 
Maybe he was, but to Roman ears, his name was something like Dick, the flat-footed clown. Of the 21 surviving plays, there are just a few that are now seen as significant works. I'll look at a couple of them in detail in upcoming episodes, but here's a short word about the other significant works so that you can get a feel for the general themes and features of his plays. Amphitryon is the only surviving play by Plautus on a mythological subject, and even this is incomplete. We have some large sections from the later part of the play missing. He used the story of how Jove, that's Zeus in the Greek, seduced Alcmena, the wife of Amphitryon. The god achieves this by disguising himself as Amphitryon, who is away at war. But the majority of the play is about Amphitryon's confused reaction to the events on his return. Plautus himself termed this play as tragicomedy in the prologue, so perhaps trying to emulate the mid-period works of Euripides. The portrait of the human husband and wife is unusually subtle for a Roman play. It's been suggested, and it seems likely, that the play is an adaptation of a lost Greek play from the middle comedy period. But as we've already seen, linking anything later to that murky period of Greek drama is pretty difficult. The Croc of Gold takes the stock character to the extreme, especially in the character of the mythanthropic Euclio, as he guards a hoard of gold that has mysteriously appeared under his house. It's another incomplete work, with the end missing, but the intended finish can be derived from later summaries. This play included a memorable scene where, begrudging even his wasted breath as he sleeps, Euclio attaches bellows to his nose. In his waking hours, he curses the loss of water in his tearful eyes and carefully keeps the cuttings from his own fingernails. The main thrust of the plot is how Euclio prevents the wedding of his pregnant daughter Phaedra to her young lover through his efforts to keep his newfound wealth secret. There's much comedy at the expense of Megadorus, an old man who has designs on marrying Phaedra himself, who is never seen on stage, although her offstage cries during labour are a key plot point. The miser as a character is of course a well-known and well-used one, and Plautus is perhaps a little kinder on him than other playwrights. In the end, he's shown as a good-hearted man who was temporarily overcome by greed that masked his essential good nature. The play is also notable for its two slave characters, who have the traits of intelligence and a caring kindness that are typical to these character types in Plautus. The Rope is an adaptation from a play by Dephilus, and has a very complicated plot which I won't even attempt to explain here. Enough to say that it's the story of Palestrata, who was stolen by the pirates as a child. Years later, she becomes reunited with her father via her pimp. It includes very familiar recognition scenes and the use of miraculously discovered trinkets that were taken with the child that prove her identity. The comedy is mostly derived from the interactions between the masters and their slaves, and it's the slaves who again provide the most intelligence when the mystery is unravelled. The play is romantic at its heart, even having some melodramatic moments, but it is fast-moving comedy too, despite a couple of places where Plautus has the characters take on unusually moralising tones, at one point suggesting that too often a theatre audience is heard applauding words of wisdom uttered on the stage, but seeming to forget them as soon as they get home. The Captives is more serious than most of Plautus's other work. Its themes of slavery and the fate of prisoners of war are not an obvious source for comedy. The main plot concerns Philocrates and his slave Tyndarus, who have been captured in battle and are now to be used by Hegio to bargain for his son, who's also been taken prisoner. Master and slave swap places as the trade is negotiated. 
The character swap is played for laughs, but there's no sexual comedy, usually a stock-in-trade of Roman theatre, and the discussions on slavery, war and personal freedom are handled seriously. This is referenced in the prologue, which is of a more serious tone than usually found. However, it's still a comedy full of mistaken identity and misunderstood relationships, plot lines that stretch credulity to the maximum, and the usual joyful scene where, in this case, the slave is revealed to be of good birth. Plautus himself seems to have thought highly of it, perhaps the comic playwright feeling he had tapped into something a bit more serious and meaningful here. In the prologue, the characters and their situation are introduced, with the occasional nod to the gathering crowd. Towards the end comes the following passage, with a sort of apology or warning that this is not a run-of-the-mill comedy. What poor creatures are men when I reflect upon it? This plot will be performed by us, a play for your entertainment. But there is, besides, a thing which in a few words I would wish to inform you of. Really, it will be worth your while to give your attention to this play. It is not composed in a hackneyed style, and not like any other plays, nor are there any ribald lines unfit for utterance. Here is neither the perjured producer, the artful courtesan, nor yet the braggart captain. The Persian singer puts us firmly in the world of pimps and prostitutes, and as such is often seen as a useful commentary on the underbelly of Roman life. Although still a comic farce that relies on disguised characters and the ultimate misfortune of the pimp for its comedy, it does have moments that suggest at least a nod to realism, particularly in the lower life characters. The Trickster is a play in a similar vein, concerned with the buying and selling of a prostitute. She's loved by a young man who has just heard that she's been sold to a new owner. He wants to buy her freedom but has no money and his father won't give him a loan so he turns to his slave to come up with a crafty plan. It's one of the few Roman plays that can be precisely dated. We know it was first performed in 191 BCE at a festival for the god Rhea whose temple was completed that year in Rome in time for the festival. The shortest of Plautus' prologues warns the audience that they are in for a long session. The play is lengthy. So in just these six examples we can see there is definitely a theme here. The central story of a young couple almost thwarted in their love is present in almost all the plays. The plots around the central plot may vary but the heart of the plays is always a personal domestic story. That of course is largely there because it's borrowed from the Greek middle and new comedy and for the same reasons. The politics of the late Roman Republic did not allow for satiric critical comedy any more than they did in the later Greek period. The domestic was safer ground and the image of the purity of young love is a common trope across Roman literature. At which point I think we also have to address the position of the prostitute or courtesan. In Roman society, prostitution didn't carry quite the moral stigma that it has in many modern societies, but that, you won't be surprised to hear, was a very one-sided attitude. In ancient Rome, prostitution was legal and licensed. A man of any social position can buy the services of a prostitute, male or female, without social sanction and indeed could continue that relationship on a medium to long-term basis without criticism although ultimately they would be expected to marry within their social situation. It was expected, however, that a man would be somewhat discreet, show moderation in his enjoyment of sex and not publicly display any signs of infatuation with the object of his desires. Most prostitutes were slaves or ex-slaves, so it's difficult to assess the degree to which prostitution was a choice or enforced. 
Using a slave for sexual purposes would have been considered perfectly normal, as a slave was the property of the owner, to be used as they saw fit. Any free prostitutes were of the lowest social class, and therefore in the social group that we have the least records for. There used to be a view that mostly Rome was a hotbed of sexual activity, a view promoted in antiquity by the likes of Cato and the biographers of emperors, but there's now a more nuanced view. The reports by Cato and others of the moral decline of Rome may be exaggerated hyperbole, an orator arguing his case with extreme examples. And the biographers of emperors often had reasons for showing past leaders in a bad light, so we have to treat all these reports with caution. However, we also must acknowledge that Rome was a very male-dominated slave society, where there must have been women forced unwillingly into prostitution and controlled by socially and physically dominating men, some of whom exploited men and women by working as their pimps. Some slaves were, we can be sure, treated in the worst possible ways. Rape was a crime under Roman law, but bringing a legal case was difficult for any woman, and in the situation of a slave who had no legal standing, a case could only be bought if the rape would cause damage to another man's property, meaning damage to the slave herself, and compensation was being sought for the owner. All of which is pretty horrific to our 21st century beliefs, grounded as they are in Judeo-Christian morality. In Plautus we generally get the higher class prostitute, a woman who is established in a long-term agreement with her client, or the young innocent about to move into prostitution. The pimp figure is an untrustworthy, slippery and slightly threatening figure, but this is sugar-coated entertainment, not reportage. Part of the happy ending is the release of the prostitute from her trade through miraculous recognition or reconciliation of the loved prostitute with her client partner. This is the glossy, cheery, pretty woman version of prostitution, suitable for a bit of general entertainment. In most cases, the role of the female in the relationship is a completely passive one, sometimes so passive that they're not seen as on-stage characters. The obstacle to be overcome in the course of true love involves getting the money to purchase the prostitute to release her from her current position, or overcoming the moral objection of others because the woman had been previously violated. It's the role of the man to achieve this, with the woman being the recipient of the outcome. Where there are female characters of more interest, they are the clever slave characters, and they are few and far between. It's been argued that Plautus often seems to take up the cause of the slave or the prostitute or just the downtrodden in his plays, making them the cleverest and in many cases the most likeable characters on stage, so much so that some commentators have suggested that he is a social commentator, or even a propagandist for social change. Although some of his plays suggest that he had social concerns, to me, the biography of Plautus, unreliable as it is, suggests that his primary intention was to produce popular comedy and to make money. We maybe see him pushing the envelope of the form a little, to see if he can make tragic comedy and slightly serious drama acceptable, but comedy is always the main thrust. Again from the biography, it's suggested that he came from lowly origins and had some years of hardship and struggle before finding success, so I think it's fair to say he could well have had some sympathy with the plight of the socially oppressed. But equally, he must have been well aware that his kind of success was rare and led to social mobility in only the rarest of circumstances. Slave girls or poor women being sold into prostitution wasn't unusual. 
Women generally had no role in society outside of the home, and those who were trained in finer arts like music and recitation, be that by their father or their pimp, so that they could project an air of refinement, might consider themselves the luckier ones. In many ways, the daughters of good families had a similar role to the slave girl, except the payment was a dowry, and they gained a home life to be mistress of. It's possible that the heroine slave girl in the plays did get some sympathy from the audience, but given the extremely patriarchal nature of Roman society and the place of women in it, it's doubtful that any sympathy was carried anywhere significant once the theatre crowd had dispersed. So whatever thoughts Plautus may have had in that direction seem very muted and not a particularly significant part of his work. As far as political activity goes, any overt comment carried great risk to the playwright, so its absence is perhaps not surprising. But there was the odd occasions when Plautus dares some light social criticism. In The Braggart Soldier, there's a reference to the imprisonment and exile of playwright Gnaeus Navius, and in The Menachemus Brothers, there's a swipe at the judicial system. In two plays, there's a reference to the Oppian Laws. These edicts had been in place since 215 BCE and restricted the wealth of women who were not allowed to possess more than half an ounce of gold, to wear gold in public, or clothing of different colours, especially anything trimmed with purple. The rules, which also included curbs on food consumption and hospitality, were introduced due to the financial concerns brought about by the costs of the Second Punic Wars, but later became used to curb extravagances for social reasons. The perception that luxury inevitably led to greed was widespread, and there was a fear that this would lead to the undermining of traditional Roman values of piety and restraint. A movement grew to repeal the laws, and this was done in 195 BCE, but not before a large group of women gathered in the Forum to protest and call for an ending to the rules. It was one of the few occasions when the raised voices of women were heard in political argument. As already mentioned, the plays are mostly fast-paced, with rapid dialogue that is comically sharp, often raunchy and crude, and full of puns and wordplay for the Roman ear. There are also sung passages, which are sometimes lyrical when contemplating the beauty of true love, and sometimes jaunty and funny. To the modern ear, the dialogue often seems heavy-handed. There's a lot of repetition and plot points are pointed out excessively, with the smallest point being clarified by the characters within the play. This has been put down to necessity, as the audience was not that of the sophisticated Greek theatre, but a gathered crowd in a marketplace or temple steps, who were largely illiterate and potentially with limited interest in the performance. The plots are extremely complicated, and it was clearly felt a prologue giving a short summary of the plot was necessary to enable understanding. Plautus handles the prologues to his plays with assurance. They give a sense of the tone of the presentation to the assembled crowd. For example, this is the opening to the prologue of the Menachemus Brothers. In the first place, dear spectators, I wish health and happiness to myself and you. I bring you Plautus with my tongue, not with my hand. I beg you to receive him with favoured ears. Now learn the argument and give your attention. In as few words as possible, and I will be brief. In fact, the subject is a Greek one, not Attic, but Sicilian. But in their comedies the poets do this. They feign that all the business takes place in Athens, in order that it may appear more Grecian to you. I will not tell you that this matter happened anywhere except where it's said to have happened. This has been my preface to the subject of this play. Nor will I give you the subject meted out to you, not in a measure, not yet in a threefold measure, but in the granary itself. So great is my heartiness in telling you the plot.
He then goes on to set up the backstory for the play and the names and relationships of the characters. So the prologue is serving three purposes. Firstly, it called to the crowd and filled in as those committed to the play got settled. On a slow day, one can imagine some improvisation being employed to get more attention before the start of the play. Then it explains the plot and introduces the characters to assist understanding. Finally, it's an appeal for enjoyment of the piece, sometimes in the form of a preemptive apology in case the show isn't appreciated. Short epilogues were also introduced in much the same vein, appealing for applause and appreciation for the efforts of the actors. The play's applauders aren't performed often these days, and when they are, it's often for academic study only. But they have been heavily adapted and used as the basis for other works. Here's just a few examples. The 1962 Stephen Sondheim musical A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum is compiled of snippets of Plautus' work and themes. The comic story that strings the song and music together is a clever slave helping his master to gain the affections of the girl next door, so typical Plautus. It ran for over two years on Broadway and spawned a successful film version in 1966. Comedy Tonight is the opening song that you're most likely to recognise. For the Brits, I should add that Frankie Howard took the lead as the slave in the London version, which in turn led to a popular sitcom, Up Pompeii, that ran in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Perhaps more significantly, the Menachemus Brothers is a primary source for Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, first produced in 1594. In 16th century Europe, Plautus was very popular and Shakespeare probably went directly to Plautus as his source, rather than other earlier adaptations. He cleaned up the play significantly and added the second set of identical twins, the slaves, probably taking the idea from Plautus's other much-plundered play, Amphitryon. Both writers get their comedy from the switch of the master and servant relationship, and although both handle the complexities of the plot well, I think everyone agrees that Shakespeare conveys the poignancy of the love story to much greater effect. Jean Girardou called his 1929 adaptation of Amphitryon Amphitryon 38 because he estimated that there had already been 37 previous adaptations of the play. These include the adaptation by Molière, the prolific 17th century French playwright, who was also not afraid to make extensive use of Plautus for his plots. Other adapters of Plautus include Goldoni, Machiavelli, Dryden, Hayward and a host of lesser-known European playwrights from the 16th and 17th centuries. Along with Shakespeare and Molière, Ben Jonson adapted Plautus for his early comedy The Case is Altered, first produced in 1609. For this, he used the plots from both The Captives and The Pot of Gold. Plautus died in Rome in 184 BCE, the most successful playwright of his day, and, as far as we can tell, loved by his audience. We may not now see him as a great man of literature, but in his time he was held in the highest regard, his name being synonymous with quality entertainment. His epitaph reads, Since Plautus is dead, comedy mourns. The stage is deserted, then laughter, jest and wit, and all melodies of countless number wept together. There's no information about his death, no story to keep his name alive. That, I think, was because his plays spoke for him and lived on in the Roman world popular enough to be copied and preserved until the literary world of the Renaissance was ready to rediscover him. In the long arc of history, he could now just be seen as a conduit bringing Greek comedy into the late medieval period. 
but there are at least eight Greek lost comedies featuring identical twins. Without Plautus reusing these situations and other themes and plots from Greek comedy, we may never have had Shakespeare, Moliere, Johnson and others in quite the way that we do. But to suggest that this is all we should know Plautus for would be disingenuous to him. His popularity alone suggests he spoke to his contemporaries in a way that was meaningful and entertaining for them. In the main, he didn't try to answer big questions, change society or question morality. But he was a man of his time and tapped into what the audience of his day wanted within the constraints of their society. Next time we start a detailed look at the plays. Casina is a typical Plautus play about two men fighting for the affections of a beautiful young woman. One whose motives are driven by true love, the other whose desires are of a baser kind, and both need to involve their servants in their scheming to try to get their way. I look forward to your company next time. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com or ko-fi.com, or please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other theatre folk find us. All support helps keep the lights on here and is gratefully received. Please also do join us on Twitter, where we have some great conversations about theatre-related stuff. Thanks for your support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.